Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you on this July 4th weekend. We had a great time. We were in Florida. That's where we grew up. It's our home. And uh, visiting family. My mom's birthday has always been on July 3rd. She never never changed that. <laughs> but um, she's, she's at that stage in life where, you know, this could be the last one. And a lot has happened just in the last few months in her life that have been very challenging. So, but it's good to be back. Uh, good to be back with you. We made the five-hour drive yesterday from Asheville to Nashville, and we'll be making it after we get back. Um, I, I was thinking about the kids down there, and uh, as I mentioned in the prayer, the reality that these kids really trust God. And in fact, doesn't Jesus say, to come into the family, you must become as a child. There are parts of our lives that we have to mature. In fact, Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he's talking about how when we grow, we must stay as children when it comes to evil, but we must become mature in our thinking. And that balances, because we're going to talk again about the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer begins with what two words? Our Father. So that means we come to Christ as a child, no matter what your age. You, you never outgrow your dinosaur shoes. I mean, you never do <laughs> when you pray. But hopefully, as you grow older and more mature, you don't get, you don't get cynical about prayer. So it becomes just rote, vain repetitions. But you pour out your heart to God. When we come to God in prayer in this cultural moment, we've got to realize, of course, that we just don't come to him when we have to say something, when we have to ask for something. But coming to God is just so natural because he is so close to us. He loves us. He is our father. And just like you with family members and friends whom you love to be with, you love to talk with, you don't think about what you're going to say, you just say it because that comes from your heart. And you enjoy the fellowship, and that's what prayer is intended to be, except we come to the one who created us, the one who loves us. And with that in mind, we're going to go back to that prayer and finish it up in Matthew chapter 6. That was read so well. I like the children's version of that. That's... Uh, that's a good idea sometimes to look at it from that perspective. Lynn and I were in a church service in Ohio. About a thousand people there. It's a good sized church. And they had something that they do regularly, and that is they allowed people to share a, a, a brief testimony from the crowd. They passed around microphones. And um, it was a lovely looking crowd, kind of an upscale group in some one sense and so on. But as people got up to share, uh, one guy got up and said, I just got out of prison you know, a few days ago on Wednesday uh, for paid murder, and I'm kind of looking for something. I thought, well, that's really interesting. Another lady got up and shared that she had been in the Wicca movement as a witch, and now she's in church and says, well, you know, I'm, I'm here looking for something. And another lady was sitting right by us, I think, wasn't it, babe? Not too far away. She had just had a child a month before. It's evidently an expected child there first. And she stood up and started talking and started weeping. 
she said, and some of you can, re can relate to this, I hate my life, I hate my husband, I hate my child, I hate everything. And that happens sometimes, you know. But what was interesting around each one of these individuals, this went on for two hours, by the way. When somebody got up and would share that and the microphone got passed, there were usually five or six people who would come up around that person. Because I know, for example, the, the mom with postpartum depression, there were some people coming up saying, okay, you need some time away. We're going to take care of things, et cetera. You know, that, that's, that's what the body does. But it also reminds me that when you have a group of people together, and you look so nice, you look so bright and shiny and so on, but there are deep, deep issues in most people's lives, challenges and struggles that nobody else will really know because when they ask how you're doing, we all say, we're fine. But God knows. And eventually, it should be the body coming alongside as well. So when we talk about prayer, we have needs. We talk about the big picture, but also it gets very small with the needs that I have that may seem unimportant in the light of God's kingdom coming. I'm struggling. I'm depressed. That's as important to God as anything else. And until we recognize that, we're missing, I think, the value and the power of prayer. What I'd like to do is, of course, put, if you don't mind, go ahead and put up the, uh, the prayer. It's already been read, so we won't necessarily go through it right now. We will go through it in just, just a moment, the last part of it at least. And that is called, of course, the Lord's Prayer. In, in Luke 11, the Lord teaches us to pray, and Jesus says, okay, here's how you pray. And he didn't say necessarily to pray these words, although that's not a bad thing to do. But he gets at some of the major themes to help us understand what prayer is. We talked last week about the fact that the first introduction to the prayer itself is we're praying requests related to God himself. We call him Father, our Father. Remember that was scandalous, right? Scandalous to call God Father. Scandalous to call God Father. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's only about a dozen mentions of God as Father, usually the Father of Israel. New Testament, over 250 times God is called Father. Father. Jesus came and revealed God as Father. Hallowed be your name. Let God's name be revered. Let it be well known, his character, who he is, what he has done, and what he can do and what he will do. The great and mighty God. In today's culture, God, the name of God, is ridiculed and mocked so often. And that's not any different, but now it's a little bit different because we can communicate so, so well to everyone. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. It's going to. And so what we're saying is, God, let it come. Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. It's one of the things that the church has been waiting for from the very beginning. But remember, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day in the sight of God. I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to see the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul's going to think he just got there. I mean, that's how time is outside of the realm in which we live. 
It may seem like a long time. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, it's coming. It's coming. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His rule of grace, love, and mercy will, will be ours. But now we move into the second part of the prayer. The second part of the prayer is very simply this. It is about us. And there are three requests here as well. We're going to go through each of these. Notice the words us and our, us and our, us and our. And they're not as easy as you th- to understand as you think they might be because there's a depth here. Let's go to the first one. Give us this day our daily bread. Many scholars throughout history have wondered why in the world would the very first request from individuals, personal request, would be about food. It seems so mundane, so unspiritual in light of all that has been prayed up to this point. Give us today our daily bread. The the word today and the the immediacy of it is, is emphasized twice. I think the key is, of course, we live one day at a time. We take up our cross, how often? Daily. A good Christian life is encompassed by good Christian days, good faithful days. You are responsible for today. Anybody who's been associated with Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, you know, all you worry about is today. I'm gonna be sober today. I can't worry about tomorrow, today. In the same way, the Lord is saying, okay, there's a lot of things going on. Be faithful today. Pour yourself in today. See God's hand in everyone you meet today. And then recognize, recognize that the daily things that we need in life, the daily sustenance comes from God. I remember the story about the the children that had been rescued from the Holocaust. Parents had been killed. Many of the camps still had children there. And they put them all together and they made sure that they had plenty to eat. But when they went to sleep at night, they couldn't sleep. Very few of the children could sleep. And they couldn't figure out why. So they did counseling, they did exercise, they did all these things. And they realized that all they needed to do was to give each child a chunk of bread to go to bed with. And they all slept so soundly because they knew they would have something to eat tomorrow. And they didn't know that in the camps. That confidence of saying, Lord, you know, give us today our daily bread. We have so much. And, and, you know, frankly, prosperity tends to dilute prayer. We don't think we need God. When really the very bread that we eat, the very food that we have, the very things that we need each day are really from the hand of God. But we don't acknowledge that. We don't recognize that. About 800 million people in the world are undernourished or starving. 800 million. Now that sounds like a lot. It is. There's 7 billion, 7.4 billion people. So that's a little over 10%. But it's a lot less than it used to be. So we say, yay. But that's still a lot of people, isn't it? Most of the reason people don't get something to eat is because of man-made reasons. The earth provides far enough, more than enough food for every person. 
but there are some reasons why they don't. Sometimes it's war, sometimes it's weather, sometimes it's lack of interest. Heard a fellow once ask me, why does God let people die of hunger? Why does he let people starve? And the only thing I could think of was, I think God would ask us that question. What is it about us and our world and our plenty that that is not a priority to, to make sure that people are fed? The bottom line of this part of the prayer is simply this. Everything that comes your way ultimately is from the hand of God. It is a blessing. It's then and only then do we recognize that we must give thanks. When I was... Uh, finishing up college, I lived with two other guys, and they were out of college, and they were wonderful believers. I was a new believer, and we would pray at, at night together, and I was learning how to pray. I couldn't pray out loud because, I don't know if you've ever been this way, I'm, I'm going to say something stupid when I pray out loud. You ever done that? Okay. And so I just didn't pray much. But there was one fellow named Don, and he would start thanking God for things, and he would thank God for everything in the house. He thanked God for forks, for spoons, for knives, for plates. And I would start laughing, and I'm sorry, you know. But then I began to realize he had this incredible sense of gratitude for everything, everything. And I learned a lot from people like that because that was his attitude in life, and he lived that. You know, the word gratitude and thanksgiving is the same root word as grace grace. So if you live a life of grace, you're living a life of thanks. You do not have to do good works in order to be acceptable to God. You do them because you are. And you do them because it's a life of thanks. And God uses you in the lives of other people. The most difficult to actually put into practice is the next line. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In fact, the use of the term debt for the idea of, of sin is not unusual. It's, it's in the Old Testament, the idea, of course, that, uh, for example, you'd probably know the verse, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's still the word debt, but the idea of debt being released from a debt, forgiving a wrongdoing, have the same idea. You're releasing an individual from the consequences and giving them a renewed standing. That's what happens when you get rid of a debt. It happens when you're forgiven for a sin and a transgression. So they are in intertwined. But here, and this is so difficult, and in other passages, God ties together our forgiveness from God with how we forgive other people. God takes forgiveness very seriously. The idea being, if you've been so forgiven, that should be your life. Let me give you three key points on this. First, forgiveness is a unique God-centered characteristic. One of my favorite passages, Psalm 130, says this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I 
hope. Our culture now has completely turned over and we are a culture that is dominated by unforgiveness, by payback, by vengeance, aren't we? You do something to me, you're gonna pay. And I will not rest until you pay. How many movies and television shows and books are all about vengeance, all about payback? Hundreds just in the last few years, right? That's the goal. And it's in this context that the teachings of Jesus, when Jesus tells us to live differently, he doesn't tell you to do more. He doesn't tell you to be better. He tells you to be different, different in ways that matter. Remember, because if you're different in ways that don't matter, you are, you know, you're weird, right? But if you're different in ways that matter, it makes a huge difference. Didn't Jesus say we are to love whom? Love your enemies. Pray for those who abuse you, that slander you. Those who curse you, you bless them. I mean, the list goes on and on. We've talked about this. And it's the context of God has forgiven us so much that now we have both the opportunity and the spiritual fortitude to live differently. Now, what is there different about your life, our lives, when we live out there that people notice? Is, is, is there anything? Well, second major point is forgiveness was a key reason for Christ's sacrifice for us. Two key passages here, Colossians chapter one. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, which is defined as the forgiveness of sins. The idea that all that you have done and ever will do is contrary to the character and will of God is forgiven forgiven. You cannot make light of the power of what that statement means. And then in Colossians, the next chapter, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That picture is, is overwhelming. And then thirdly, forgiveness is a mark of the true follower of Christ. This is such an important point that Jesus is gonna have a postscript to the prayer and come back to forgiveness. But many chapters later in Matthew, Jesus tells a story, well, it's a parable. And it's a story of the unmerciful servant. Peter had asked this question, how often should I forgive someone that sins against me? Seven times Peter thought he was being generous. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. In other words, there is no end. So what do I do if he keeps doing these things? And Jesus said, you forgive. You forgive. Isn't that how God treats you? Does God ever say, wait a minute, let's see now, the time, the number, sorry, I'm 
through forgiving you. And then Jesus tells this story. This king decides that he's going to settle all of his debts with his major servants. And he has one servant that owes him a lot. This is in, in uh, Matthew 18. He owes him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was as much as a person could earn in 15 years. This guy owed the king 10,000 of those talents. In other words, 15,000 years worth. That's 150,000, what am I saying? That's a lot of money. Well, the servant begs the king for mercy because the king was getting ready to throw him into prison. And the king had compassion on him and forgave him that debt. And the story goes on that he, the servant, free now from the debt that he had, comes up to another servant who owed him 100 denarii. And denarii is what you'd earn in a day. It's a little over three months. And he says, I want my 100 denarii. And the guy says, I haven't got it right now. Please give me time and I'll pay you back. Nope. He threw him into the prison. Word got back to the king. And the king said, uh, wait a minute. He called him in. And he said to him, you have been forgiven so much, could you not forgive someone else? And he had him thrown into prison. And then Jesus ends it with this, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So overwhelmingly troubling, isn't it? So, in other words, to be forgiven, I have to forgive others. That is not a prerequisite. But what he's saying is, if you have genuinely, be, if you have genuinely forgiven, then you can't help but forgive. You can't help but forgive. This is hard for a lot of people because many of you have deep, deep hurts from people. And it has been there a long time. It's difficult. They have humiliated you. They have hurt you in one way or another. They've broken trust. They've taken advantage of you. And I'm supposed to forgive him? Really? And God says yes. It may take years. But your intention is to forgive somehow, some way. You cannot do it in your own strength. But this is the strength that God gives through the forgiveness that he has given you. There's no other way I can say it to be true to the scriptures is that. I have talked to so, so many people who tell me such horrible stories of how they were treated and how can they forgive. And sometimes at the human level, I don't know how they can. But we Christians are different. We're just children. We've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. And this marks out that we are followers of Christ. Just like loving one another, forgiving others, even when they don't deserve it. In fact, who does deserve to be forgiven, right? Jesus is going to come back to this in a moment, and so will I. And finally, the prayer ends with this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Interesting, isn't it? Saying, God, don't, don't let me be tempted. 
Now we've got to realize this comes hard on the heels of Matthew chapter 4, just before the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. And what went on for that month, we're not really sure. We see three temptations at the end, but the scriptures are clear that Jesus was tempted in every way that any person could be tempted. God knows what it's like to be tempted in human flesh. But for us to be tempted, we all still have a sin nature. One day we won't. And that nature, as Paul says, we fight against it. We want to be self-centered. We want to be self-serving. We anger. We get angry. We lie. We lust. We are unfaithful. You say, well, no, I've never been unfaithful. Then Jesus pulls that in Matthew chapter 5 and says, if you have lusted for a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. I mean, he gets right into our heads. We're lazy, we gossip, we're divisive. But we don't want to lose the big picture, the big picture of all that's going on. Lead us not into temptation is not asking God not to lead you there. Our faith must be tested, and that's the point that we're finding here. Because the word temptation is also the word for being tested and tried. It's a, it's a hardship. Because when you are tempted to sin, your faith is being tested, right? When you are going through a trial like the, the three families we just prayed for this morning, that's a trial, that's a challenge. Your faith is being tested. Your resolve is being tried. Your commitment is being examined. And some people go through t- uh, terribly difficult lives. I mean, the Apostle Paul talks about all the things he's been through from being stoned and being beaten, being imprisoned, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what he calls these in Second Corinthians? He calls these light and momentarily, momentary afflictions. Light and momentary afflictions. Because he knows what's going to happen. Uh, I was talking to Michelle. Where are you, Michelle? The idea of having an anticipation for things in the future. That drives us, doesn't it? That changes the way that we look at life in the world. The kingdom is coming. God is going to be here face to face. Every deprivation in life is gone. We are in the sense of the family of God that God has brought back. And that anticipation motivates us. We know it's going to happen. I shared with you a few weeks ago about the, the, the singles retreat that Lynn and I were on and this girl was getting married, you know. She drove everybody nuts because she had her bride book and all these other singles were not getting married in the next month. And they said awful things about her to her face and behind her face. It didn't matter to her. She's getting married. In the same way, we look at what God has for us And we hang in there because we know what he has for us. As C.S. Lewis says, some people call this pie in the sky. Well, that's only a ridicule if there is no pie. But there is a pie. And we are driven knowing what God has for us. Here's the truth here. God will not lead us to sin. He doesn't tempt us to sin. In fact, let's face it, most of us lead ourselves to sin, don't we? I read the other day about a teenage girl that said she was angry at God 
because he let her get pregnant. Teenage girl. And I'm thinking, you know how that happens, right? But that's okay. But God is the one that made her get pregnant and ruin her life. And one of my passages I memorized years ago, Proverbs 19, 13. A person's folly leads them to ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. Proverbs 19, 13. A person's folly leads them to ruin, but their heart rages against the Lord. That's like C.S. Lewis says that the door to hell is locked on the inside. People want nothing to do with God. And so God says, okay, your will be done. Your will be done. But the, the quote goes on, God does not tempt us to sin, but God does allow us to be in situations where we are tested. You do that with your kids. You help them grow and mature. And God does it for us, why? That's where we grow when we are tested. That's where we gain confidence when we are tested. That's where we develop a testimony <laughs> when we are tested. I go back to AA a lot just to listen to people. They get most of their confidence in being able to lick their addictions listening to others who are doing it. And we also get endurance, patient endurance. We can make it. We can make it. Because God is committed to your growth. So from a practical side though, you can't talk about temptation without thinking some steps here. So two passages I think that are important here. James chapter one. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's the same word for temptation that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those not who succeed, but those who love him, who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin always leads to death. Spiritual death and real death. So, you know, as you know, I'm a mathematician. So I like to enumerate things. So let me lead, lead you through this because this helps me so much in a practical way. Here's how temptation works. First, there's an enticement to sin by someone or something you see, hear, or think. It entices the sinful nature that is there. This is not sinful. We are all tempted. But what happens next is, secondly, an intentional decision to consider, to think about, to mull about this temptation. Maybe you're sitting in front of your computer. It's pornography or vileness of some sort, immorality of some sort, the division of some sort, some sort of thing that is pulling you and you know it's not good. And then as a result of that, as you mull, you have this positive feeling toward what you're considering. Hmm, 
This isn't too bad. It's not like I'm murdering somebody. And then there's an intentional decision to act on that temptation and then the action itself. That's the pattern. It's, this is fishing terminology in James where he says you, you, see the, you see the bait and you're swimming along and you... That's it. Now, that's a temptation to sin. Every one of us go through it. And every one of us know, every one of us know we can stop it. We don't. Many times. Many times. So how does this relate when it's a, tr- a test or a trial or a challenge? You lose your job, you lose your spouse, you lose your health, you lose your child. It's so hard. Same kind of a f- progression. You find yourself in a trial or challenge, but it's not appealing to your sinful nature. It's appealing to your sense of who you are in a world that is broken. Then you recognize that this is a test of my faith. Am I going to trust God or not? God doesn't play games with us. And whatever is going on, I don't understand it. That's why in the Psalms, when you look at David praying to God, he pours out his heart to God, he shakes his fist to God, he asks God, why, where are you? And then he expresses his trust. I don't understand, but I trust you. So that's when you make the decision how you respond. Notice the decision in both of these, whether it be sin or whether it be challenges in life. You decide. This is what free will is. This is letting God, this is allowing God to work in our lives and it's letting us decide the kind of person we become. The kind of person you become is based upon the decisions you make. Small ones usually over a period of time. That's why when I was in college, university, and I would speak to the 3,000 students, I would tell them, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, the kind of person that you are then is going to be determined by the small decisions you make leading up to that point. You will never become today what you, you will never become in the future what you're not becoming today. And we Christians forget that. That's, remember, that's the day-by-day thing. And when we pour ourselves into this day, we see God's hand in this day. When we give thanks for this day, when we pray for help in this day, it's amazing how that strengthens us. It's like working out. You're probably thinking that I work out every day. No, I worked out once. And I got this body. No, no. You have to do it regularly, don't you? You have to, to keep it up. You decide. That's one of the things I appreciate uh, about Michael. Michael and I have been friends a long time. And I remember him saying, I don't know if he said it in the sermon or if he said it to me, but when, you're, when you encounter these kinds of temptations, encounter these kinds of trials, we want to say why, 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 but the why question is almost never answered on this side of the resurrection. You have to trust that. So what do we ask? And Michael says, we ask, now what? What should I do? How should I respond? How should I respond? Remember, temptation is not a sin. Some people will say, the temptation is just so strong, I give in every time. But if you keep giving in, you don't know how strong it is because you keep giving in. It's only those who go to the end and get over the other side, they realize how strong it actually is. It's like um, in a wind, 
How strong is the wind? Well, if you lay down, you don't know. Or if you go with the wind, you don't know. How strong is that army over there? Well, if you run from them, you don't know. You've got to engage them. Winston Churchill said, the kites fly highest into the wind, not with it. That doesn't mean it gets easy. It just means we know that we have the strength. God is going to be guiding us through, and we appeal to that. We, we decide. We decide. And once we decide, the blessings from God and the power of God are overwhelming. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That, you know, lead us not and deliver are really linked together. It could be evil or the evil one. It's hard to say because whether it's neuter or, or whether it's masculine. It's tied together. Asking God to unshackle us from the evil one in the midst of whatever's going on. Satan will use difficulties in your life. He will use temptations of sin in your life to deter you, to distract you, to divert you from what you really know is true in God. But God gives us that hope and that confidence. We know. We know. We hang in there. James says this in that same chapter I just read from. Now, this is how weird Christians are, okay? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. I am going through a terrible thing in my life. Praise God. People don't say that too much. But if there's a reason behind it, they can endure. They can endure. In Auschwitz, they found that it wasn't the young, strong men that survived the death camps. It was people, even older, frail people that survived, those who had a reason to live beyond the camp. Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Read it there. It's fascinating. No matter how difficult it was, if they thought it was meaningless and there was no way out, they withered and died. But those who saw beyond the camp, reasons beyond, they made it through. And that's how God works for all of us. Cannot all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word perfect there doesn't mean morally perfect. It just means it's this growth and maturity. That's how you become mature. And then I love the passage in 1 Timothy 4. Train yourself to be godly. Do not try to be godly. Train yourself. It's on a regular basis. Every day, you're working out. Examine yourself, your faith. When are you most tempted? When do you find yourself getting most depressed and discouraged? How do you usually respond? And then ask God for strength so that when it occurs, you don't know, what am I going to do? No, you know how you're going to respond. You're training yourself. And decide now, decide now, this is how you're going to respond. Decide now when you sit down at your computer how you're going to respond to the temptation of pornography. Decide now how you're going to respond when you've got this person that drives you nuts, how you're going to respond to them in love, care. So here's some truths to pray by. First, our Father lovingly leads us to growth and blessing. Secondly, we must acknowledge our natural inclination to be self-centered and independent of God. We do. So we make statements. We make actions. We make ourselves in a, in a position so that we can 
turn our heart to him. That's why we pray every day on a regular basis. And there's no temptation or trial greater than the promises, the presence, and the power of God. None. None. Well, in the couple minutes we have left. After the prayer, Jesus goes back to one point that he made earlier in the prayer because he thinks it's so important. It's a postscript. And, and notice what he says. After he says, deliver us from evil, he says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the most difficult part, I think, of the prayer, and that's why he goes back to it. Because the reality of forgiveness, which is so vacant in today's culture, is such a powerful testimony to a world that is fraught with the idea of vengeance. June 17, 2015, in Charleston, South Carolina, you remember Dylan Roof sat in a Bible study there at Emmanuel Church. And after being there an hour, he stood up and killed nine of those people who had welcomed him with open arms. He wanted to, he says, to ignite, to, excuse me, to ignite a race war. Of course, he was arrested later the next day, and in 48 hours, he was arraigned before the judge, and the family members were all there. And the judge did an unusual thing. He let the family members speak to him. I don't know if you've seen the movie Emmanuel by Brian Ivey. It's amazing. It is amazing. Almost all of them said, we don't know why you did this. You took away our life. You took away my mother. I'll never hold her again. And so, but we forgive you. We forgive you. People didn't know what to do. People did not know what to say. But those people, with their walk with Christ, they knew how great of grief and losses they were experiencing, that the forgiveness they had experienced from God through Jesus Christ was something that had to be, be shared. A lot of people were not happy that they forgave him. Civil rights activists felt that this was a setback to the movement. The family's decision to forgive was way too early. They needed to process it. They had what they called a rush to forgiveness. But if you watch this movie, and I hope you get a chance to, it just absolutely revolutionized the community because everything was pointing to Jesus Christ and to God. There was no other explanation for it. And when the secular media tried to get their heads around it, they just couldn't. They just couldn't. But every one of those people could. In fact, one of the, the guys, Chris Singleton, is a well-known athlete, he's a baseball player, played uh, in the Cubs uh, for a couple of years afterwards, and now is a speaker, a young guy. And um, he misses his mom so much. And he talks about, I couldn't forgive him on my own. I needed help. And it was God that gave him that help. One last thing and we'll close. 
Many of you are familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom, who and her family, they, they hid Jews. They lived in, in, uh, in the, the, the Netherlands and uh, hid Jews from the Nazis. Well, they were arrested. In fact, she and her sister Betsy were arrested one time, and they were taken to the concentration camp in Ravensbrück. They, Betsy, of course, died there in camp, and Corey was released, emaciated, but she gained her strength back, and she began immediately speaking in Germany, telling those Germans that she forgave them, and that God's forgives, no matter how horrible the sins, God could forgive them. And so she was speaking, this is 1947, so two years after the war, okay? She's speaking in Munich, and it's a small church. She says, in those days, the Germans, they would come to church silently, they would sit there, they would listen, and they would leave silently. What could you say? What could you say? And she saw, thought she recognized a man in the, in the crowd there. And then as she began to think, she recognized him as one of the guards, one of the guards at Ravensbrook, who had brutalized them. She was afraid that he would recognize her. And she says that when he, after the service was over and everybody quietly left, he came up. And he thrust out his hand and said, that was a fine message, Fraulein. How good to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, she says, who had spoken so glibly about forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than to take his hand. I couldn't. I just couldn't. I remember the leather crop swinging from his belt and how he would use it. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. And she thought, well, he doesn't remember me. That's, that's good. But since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me all the cruel things I did. Fraulein, I would like to hear you say yourself that you forgive me. Will you forgive me? And she couldn't. She said, here I am. I've been talking about forgiveness. And here it was right here. I couldn't. I couldn't. But then she said, but I had to. I didn't want to, but I had to. Because Jesus had said, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, then neither will your Father forgive yours. So I stood there, clutching my handkerchief. Forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed. By the way, to me, that's the best prayer ever. Jesus, Help me. I lifted my hand and I reached out and woodenly and mechanically clutched his. An incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang where we had joined hands. And then this healing warmth came over me. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hand. This former guard and then the former prisoner, I've never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And that became the beginning of the ministry that God gave to her. 
In fact, Corey Timman goes on to say this, and we'll close. Forgiveness, she says, is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It is the power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. So, for all of us, when we just look at the very simple Lord's Prayer, it's jam-packed, isn't it? It's healing, it's convicting, it's challenging, but most of all, it's full of grace and love and dependence on the God, the Father, who loves us most.